everyone. Welcome back to the Thrillogy Podcast. My name's Krista, and I'm here with my two co-hosts. I'm Morgan. And I'm Cameron. I'm actually going to start this week's episode off a bit different. Not just jumping right into my case. I found an article from Gawker that begged the question of, is true crime melting our brains? The article actually states that in the last 20 years, crime has gone down 18%. So what do we have to worry about? Overall, do you guys think that tr- like the true crime phenomenon, whether it's YouTube, podcasts, movies, is making us paranoid about the world around us? I don't know if it's that. I just think in general, having so much quick access to information makes us more paranoid. Like if you think about the 90s, for example, you didn't hear immediately what was going on all around the world. It was like you found out more slowly, you didn't have access to all this information to really know. So you were kind of sheltered and away from it. Um, So I feel like even though crime is going down, we just have more access to seeing what's going on. No, yeah, I, I, I definitely agree with that. And I think it, it almost goes with the saying ignorance is bliss. You know, when you like crime has always happened, right? Kids have always, always been abducted. People have always been killed. That's not a new, a new thing. The difference is that 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years ago, I mean, maybe you'd hear about what's happening in your town or in your state or, you know, that's kind of it. You you might not even hear about something that's going on, maybe even in the state next to you, right? So I think in a lot of ways, we just hear so much more about what's happening across the entire country. And I, and I think to a certain degree, I do think it makes people a little bit more paranoid because you might be living in a place that's completely safe where there's really nothing for you to worry about. But because you hear of all these other things that happen in other places and in other cities, it kind of sticks with you and you start to think, well, maybe that would happen to me here, you know? I also think too part of it is like the mystery of what's possible online to some people. Like now there's so many, and this is like a different type of crime, but there's like scams online and you know, people meeting strangers through the internet, which wasn't a thing like 30 years ago. Um, So I think maybe that's making people more paranoid. Um, It's kind of like newer to them. How has the true crime wave changed the way that you guys view crime? I think, well, I mean, we're a true crime podcast. So obviously I I think it's fair to say that we're all interested in it. But I do think the... I think having true crime and having so many true crime documentaries and TV shows and podcasts and series, I think in a lot of ways it does a lot of good. There are so many cases that have been solved because of people who have been listening at home or who have connected the dots. Maybe they even figure out it's somebody in their own family because they've been listening to this case. And those are things that wouldn't have happened if it weren't for true crime podcasts and documentaries. I mean, even going as far as like, you know, like there's so many cases where the, the publicity helps so, so much. So I think even though there is a level of paranoia that people start to gather from hearing so much true crime, I think overall, I think it's it's more beneficial than anything else. I think for me personally, it's almost helped to 
put like real people into the crimes because before it's just like headlines and you know i i'm not reading like articles really at that point about crimes or really doing too much research into it but now with this surge in popularity of podcasts and true crime documentaries like you really dive deep into these people's lives and their stories um so it definitely makes it a lot more interesting and also helped me at least to connect like real people to these crimes. Something, and I'm not sure if it fits the exact wording of my question of changing the way I necessarily view crime, but I feel like the wave of even like the SVU phenomenon, everyone loves the crime procedural TV shows. Everyone loves true crime documentaries, whether it's scripted, real watching the news like we're truly fascinated but I feel like the media sensation or tv sensation actually shortens how much how lengthy of a process investigation is and forensic details is to where people think it's so much quicker and more fast-paced than it really is because I remember I had worked with a girl who we were in social services but she was like oh I had gotten my bachelor's and my master's in forensic uh, forensic science and I find that to be like so fascinating because again the CSI wave that was like a really up and coming field when I was in high school and I was like that's so interesting and she was like honestly everyone says that to me but I left the field completely because you all you get is the evidence you don't know the story you don't know the face or anything behind it but again it feels more like in the TV shows because they can't be biased while like running the samples and stuff like that which completely makes sense but it always felt like in the tv shows that they were like there they're like in thick of it and i'm sure yeah there's evidence collectors but they're not the people in the labs so after i got her point and then even like uh try like trials my friend is a lawyer and i'm always like oh my god criminal law is so interesting and it's kind of the same thing it's a trial is not over in a day like it is an SVU or 42 minutes. It could go on for years. You don't realize that some people are on trial for years for some of these bigger crimes. So I think that it definitely kind of makes it, which I hate to say, but more interesting than a lot of the procedural part really is. Do you guys think that the overexposure or at least regular exposure to true crime can have a traumatizing effect? Mm. I don't know. I don't. Maybe. I don't know. It's hard to say. I don't I can't really make an opinion about it because it's something that hasn't happened to me personally. I can imagine, I guess, if you have lived through something that that comes up a lot in true crime cases, how it might be harder to get away from it because true crime TV series and documentaries and and that sort of thing are, are really are really commonplace, but I, I guess at the same time too, you do in a lot of ways have to kind of go looking for it. So I don't know. I, I, I don't know. Morgan, what do you think? Yeah, I'm torn on this. I think like anything, if you're consuming media that you shouldn't be consuming at your age, it could be traumatizing. Like even when it was like, VHSs, if a little kid got their hands on a scary movie, like that can be traumatizing. I think now it's a lot easier for kids to stumble across things that they shouldn't be accessing. 
Um, but I don't necessarily think like adults consuming this content would be likely to be traumatized by it. Like if you are seeking it out, if that's something you're interested in, I don't think it would be traumatizing. Like I said, if a child's consuming it, then I could definitely see that. Well, on the flip side of what the traumatizing effects could be, I also was thinking about like, what is our fascination with true crime? Because again, it's like a sensation right now. Like so many like crime procedure shows, documentaries, podcasts are like through the roof right now for true crime. People are making careers out of discussing it. Like the YouTuber Bailey Sarian, she started as a makeup channel and then had one we one day per week that she was dedicating to doing her makeup and putting on uh I'm not sorry not putting on telling a true crime story and her channel like surpassed two million subscribers in a year she just got a podcast deal I forget with who and she just got a Netflix deal I guess Netflix has their own YouTube channel and she's going to be doing the same thing on Netflix so it's like what fascinates us so much to bring these people to these heights and I'm not Sure, I think that people are fascinated by things that are out of reach or that they've never seen before. Like if you live in a suburban neighborhood and nothing ever goes wrong, but then you hear about like gun violence in the big city, it feels like people are fascinated by that. Oh my God, that happened down the block for me from my new apartment. But other people are like completely desensitized. So what do you guys think about the fascination aspect? I definitely think, you know, I agree with you. Um, I think that the majority of it, at least in my opinion, is like people are fascinated by things that they don't understand or they're not exposed to or they can't relate to. Like, I think that's why there's such a big fascination with like sociopaths and psychopaths and serial killers because it's like you can't comprehend how someone could possibly do that or why someone would want to do that. So it's almost like we're digging for these answers and trying to learn as much as we can because it's like I couldn't possibly relate to that or like fathom relating to that. So I want to learn and I want to know why. So I think that's probably it. I think a lot of it too is, I mean, we we, we kind of talked about this in the last couple of questions where in the past, you, you'd you maybe see a headline, you know, this person does this or this person does that. And it would, you know, be kind of a, you know, a story or tell what they did and, and maybe a little bit about who they are. But now I think what's fascinating is, is really kind of what Morgan said. You can really almost get into the minds of of that person. Why did they do what they did? Was it because of how they grew up? Was it because of, you know, is it... Is it more of like, a, were they born that way type of thing? Or, or was it something that, you know, something triggered this, you know, these actions out of them? So I think I think that's the most fascinating part is really just getting into the detail. But then not even just for the people who are committing these crimes, but also the victims of these crimes. Because so often you just see like on the news, you know, this person is gone. But you never really get to know that person, right? And it's I, f- I think that's something fascinating within itself and something really nice as well, you know, despite the circumstances. You get to hear more about this person and you get to learn more about, 
you know, what they did and, and everything in their life that led up into that point. And it makes you remember them. Um, and I think that's what a lot of families of victims want too, right? They want their loved ones to be remembered even beyond, um, you know, beyond what has happened to them. So I think it's fascinating from both ends and, and just really learning more about what makes these people tick, who these people are, both victims and the people who are committing these crimes and just everything that that, you know, is involved with that. I think you make a good point of saying, you know, spreading victim stories too, because I think you kind of being a true crime podcast or creating true crime content, you kind of toe that line of not sensationalizing or like giving too much time to the the criminal. Um, you want to really talk about the victims and have like a victim focus. Um, and I think for a while people weren't doing that, but now I feel like podcasts at least are trying to make an effort to have that like victim focus, which I do think is a positive thing. I also feel like people just want to be involved with something like we are really seeing it literally right now with the Gabby Petito case, internet sleuths like on TikTok 24 seven sending updates, like anything to feel like they're in the mix of it is also fascinating to people. Same thing with the documentary on Netflix. Uh, Don't fuck with cats. It was like another classic example, probably one of the first ones of the internet sleuths get like ganging together and, and solving it and just feeling like they're part of something bigger. I think that's also a really big part of the true crime fascination. So, yep, that pretty much concludes the Gawker article. I saw it and I just had to bring it up on this week's episode because it was almost perfect. And it kind of, we will actually be able to loop it back into the topic that I chose today. So without further ado, we're going to jump into today, to today's topic. Today, we are actually going to the last frontier to discuss a dark issue that the state has. For anyone unfamiliar, the last frontier is the state of Alaska. Alaska is the 49th state, so it's fairly newer, quote unquote. And for any international listeners, Alaska is not attached to the mainland of the United States. The climate there is extremely cold and desolate and quite literally dark. We have spoken about the sun in Arctic climates way back in the beginning of Thrilogy, actually. So go check out episode two with Rodney Marks if you're fascinated with Arctic crime. Anyway, they do have a fairly high cost of living compared to the mainland, but about one in 10 Alaskans do live in poverty. Anchorage, which is Alaska's largest city, but actually not their capital, holds a dark secret as far as crime goes, and it is related to a string of sex trafficking that began in the 1990s. In most cases, generally speaking, perpetrators traffic those they feel people won't miss or won't long for or go looking for. They take advantage and groom people, often young adults and teens, could be men or women, and eventually get them into a cycle where they cannot get out. So, I mean, the most... Classic example is a man oftentimes, not stereotype, man oftentimes meets a woman buying her lavish gifts or, you know, someone who didn't grow up with anything, anything could be lavish, 
lavish gifts, maybe a roof over their head, and then slowly in time start to almost turn similar to an abuser. And now that person who was the recipient of the gifts now is going to quote unquote, oh, this individual. So that's like one of the most classic grooming methods, Sally, that is out there. So aside from the horrors that you would assume that come with being trafficked, being trapped in such a situation can become violent oftentimes. Alaska is ranked number 32 in states with human trafficking issues, so it's actually not that high up there on the list. But in 2019 alone, they were actually bumped up to number 15 in states that picked up new cases for the year. Sources actually reported, and the source being a senator, actually reported that the trafficking out of Anchorage alone exceeds that of New York, New Orleans, Los Angeles, Detroit, and Atlanta. So those are some pretty big metro areas. Um, So I was really shocked when I read that statistic. Why would you guys think that in Alaska, and specifically Anchorage, it seems, that they have ramped up such a problem with trafficking? Like, What would be your first, your assumption? Yeah, I don't really know. Part of me feels like people move there without their families or like people don't, not as many people there have like ties to that area. So, you know, if your friend moved to Alaska and, you know, you don't hear from them for a week, that's not super abnormal. But let's say your friend lives down the street and you normally see them every other day and they don't respond to you, like you're going to know something's wrong. So maybe people there are more isolated from their families or friends, so people won't notice immediately. Yeah, that's kind of what I was going to say. It's just such a desolate, like a desolate place. I mean, especially if you're not in a city, right? My one question I do have, and I don't know if you saw this like in your sources when you're doing research. I know you said it, it you know, uh, Alaska has one of the highest rates. Is that based on like a percentage? Because that was kind of the first thing that came to mind is I almost wonder, does it maybe seem like if it's based on a percentage, right? And there's not a ton of people that live in Alaska as it is. Could that make it appear like it's um, maybe happening more often than it is in bigger cities? Obviously, a percentage is a percentage, right? But that was kind of the first thing I thought of, too. I'm not sure if the statistic that's stating them as number 32 is like people traffic per person in the like the I know you mean like the statistic like one person, but there's 100 people in that radius is traffic. But I do know that the part where they became number 15 is because it's based off the amount of cases that they picked up. Okay, cool. So then that wouldn't be a percentage. Yeah, that would just be cases. Yeah. Um, And that was. I believe a federal statistic, so federal cases. Um, mm. My guess with why it could be potentially so high in Alaska, I mean, I'm not sure about specifically Anchorage, but it Alaska is one of those places that has a lot, I would assume, a decent amount of large exports, like oil, logging. Um, I'm not sure about like fishing, but you know, like big trucks that are hauling things in and out of the area. And I feel like with that comes a lot of, can come, come a lot of trafficking issues because you like, if you go on Reddit and you just go and ask Reddit and you see weird things that people have seen at truck stops, like it's bizarre. Truckers can be very like lonely on the road. 
and I could easily see how truck stops or anything like that could pick up, like have some trafficking issues. Um, and then even going off their imports and exports, like they do have a high cost of living. And I feel like if you do not work in one of those large export industries, you might struggle to make it financially and, you know, resort to other means, which is basically the, what we're about to get to with the victims that we unfortunately have. So Anchorage, the trafficking issues, I would say, began, according to my sources, in the 90s. But they really began to realize the violence that was coming with it in 2003 when two siblings were wandering along Beluga Point and came across the dismembered torso of a young woman. The young woman was 22 years old, and her name was Desiree Lekinoff. She was a prostitute who turned into a police informant that had a sad string of events happen in her life before even the age of 18. She had been kicked out of her mother's house and reported having been raped as early as 14. So again, getting kicked out at a super early age, she's going to have to, she resorted to surviving in this way, uh, becoming a sex worker. So she was said to actually be of Native American descent. And just to paint a picture, Native women are actually two times more likely to be victims of a crime than any other races combined and 3.5 times more likely to be raped compared to other races. So, again, being we were talking about statistics before, I think it's looking at Native women on one side and every race combined on the other. So I'm not saying that they are more than anyone in particular, but generally speaking, everyone combined. And not to make it all about stats, but when Alaska reviewed their 2019 numbers to see where they could make changes, a source found that 42% of the people who reported being trafficked were actually Native people, which is a pretty outrageous chunk. And months later, another dismembered body is found on the shores of Turnagain Arm, which is very close to Beluga Point. That was the body of Michelle Roth, similar to Desiree. Roth was a sex worker and never stayed in one place, so she was way more transient. So some believe that it made it harder to report her missing or to even realize she was missing because she was someone that normally, to whether it was law enforcement that was familiar with her or loved ones, they were used to her disappearing and coming back after long periods of time. So originally, of course, police did not pay the case as much mind because they claimed that both Desiree and Michelle Roth engaged in dangerous lifestyles and were known on the Anchorage sex work scene. So with kind of we have lack of evidence and almost lack of complete investigation at this point. But would you guys assume that that the two cases are connected? It's hard to say because there's not a ton of evidence that you've given us so far, but I do feel like anytime you come across a dismembered body and then you come across another one, I can't help but feel that that's far from normal, especially, again, we're talking about a, a pretty isolated place, right? So, but potentially, I could see it if they are connected, but without more information, it's kind of hard to say. Yeah, and not only are they they were pretty close in distance because I was like thinking to myself as I was researching, I looked it up on the map. They're close, but they're also both in sex work. <laughs> like they have a commonality. So at this point, mm. they looked linked, in my opinion. Yeah, 
that's a good point too because I was at first leaning toward more what Cameron was saying like yeah you can't help but feel like they're connected when you know the way they were found was so similar but what's another link and you pointing that out kind of makes me feel more like they're connected yeah it's also really frustrating to me that when people are deemed as sex workers they're often not taken seriously due to their quote-unquote high-risk lifestyle it was almost like the younger the cases that we've dealt with with younger people oh they're just running away they'll be back and then it's like the most important 48 hours is out the window waiting for them to come back when they're not going to come back and it was just really frustrating to see that, especially, I mean, it was, it's frustrating for both of them, but it really felt frustrating hearing about um, Desiree, especially once I found the, the stats on native people, I was like, wow. So after Roth, things get even fishier. There was actually a witness that was named in Roth and Lekhanov's case, who was Sierra Ray Roberts, and she was said to be in similar circumstances as the two. She was involved with being sex trafficked and what some would say was a, a risky lifestyle. So through 2008, Roberts had different brushes with the law, albeit nothing serious. But as she began to become identified as a key witness, she disappeared. Yep, that's right. She failed to appear in court, and Roberts has not been seen since 2008. Now, around the time that police began questioning Roberts about what she may have known about the murders of Desiree and Michelle, they identified two suspects. These suspects are Don Webster and Joseph Bohm. Now, Webster and Bohm were truly sick individuals, and I'm going to mostly spare everyone here the details of their tactics. But in short, uh, Webster relied on recruiting young people from shelters and teen homes as young as 11 years old and would get them addicted to drugs so that they would stay and work for him, whether it's because they're under the influence or now they owe him something. That was his tactic. Boehm, who was a German immigrant, on the other hand, he actually seemed a bit more wealthy. He actually had what was deemed as a hardware empire in Anchorage. He had a really, really large home. I don't think it's a mansion by any stretch of the words, but it was seemed to be like large piece of property on the water. And he also recruited young people. He was a little bit more, I don't know if this is a word, but pedophilic, like more of a pedophile. Um, if that's even possible, given how sick Webster was, but he too relied on crack cocaine to keep his victims there. Now would actually be an extremely important time for me to share with you where the large home of Boehm actually was. And it was also known as a retreat for runaways. So does anyone want to guess where Joseph Boehm lived? I'd guess close to where the bodies were found. Yes. He lived right on the shores of Turnigan Arm where... Roth was found. So she was actually found less than a mile from his home. So it's hard to say, like, just from that, how they'd be linked. But Roth actually had an alias, which was Ruby. And just to show some of the linkage again, how we're starting to see that these two men are most likely linked to the dismembered bodies, that, but Boehm would often torture his victims and say that they did not want to end up like Ruby. 
And he was arrested in 2003 for drug charges. And he then reported that he had information linked to the two murders, but never revealed what. The locations are very convenient, but some theorize that he was basically grasping at straws and he was desperate to evade federal charges. So he was just kind of singing like a canary with no real grounds to be saying what he was saying. Um, But he actually died in prison and was never charged or interviewed further on the two murders. Sierra Ray Roberts was actually thought to have potentially been kept in that turn again home of Joseph Bohm by Don Webster. However, Webster denied the allegations of ever holding her captive there. Webster himself was later caught in 2008 on federal charges and was sentenced to 30 years in prison for kidnapping and trafficking charges. He was also ordered to pay his victims over $3.5 million in restitution, which is potentially the largest restitution pay-up in trafficking history. So another word for restitution, for anyone unfamiliar or similar, would be like damages, basically paying for their pain and suffering, paying for the uh, resources used to investigate this um, and, and treat these victims. So what do you guys think happened to Sierra Ray Roberts? Yeah, I mean, if she was going to be a witness in a in a case and this ended up happening to her, I mean, I think, I don't know, to me that screams motive enough, right? I mean, the best way to shut somebody up is to get rid of them, so. Yeah, especially, um, especially in that desolate area. <laughs> Like Alaska, yeah. only so much of it is habitable. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. And and I think, too, it's like, I don't know, if you're working in sex work and stuff, you kind of assume that maybe, you know, nobody's going to realize that that person's missing, but you know that they have something that could really screw you over. So, you know, get rid of them completely. Nobody's going to notice. Maybe nobody's going to miss them at first and. I don't know that anybody would look into it as much as if it was anybody else, you know? Yeah. And, uh, you know, we never truly find out, unfortunately, on paper, at least, that the three girls were connected. So Sierra, Desiree, and Michelle, we don't really ever... If you look it up, if you look them up now, it actually says that the cases are unsolved and Sierra Ray remains a missing person. But there's only so many people, one, that live in that state. It's actually the least populated state of all of them. And only so much space, like I just said, that could be habitable. Like, I feel like people who are running in those circles of that type of work, they're going to know each other. And if hap- one thing happens to one of them, I feel like the the fate of the other two is the same. So these two have, I mean, especially the alias, the Ruby alias, that was I'm like, how is this unsolved? But I mean, that's hearsay, but still. And am I the only one who found it crazy that Don Webster only got 30 years for preying on beating and drugging, pimping out minors? I felt like that was a little bit low of a sentence. Yeah, that's crazy. (laughs) That for beating, drugging, and not one of those three things, the three total, only 30 years, that's that's not enough. Yeah, I wonder if it has anything to do with – I think there were federal charges, so I don't know if maybe states come down harder than the federal government. I would have thought it would be the opposite. Maybe not, and I guess they can only really charge him on what they can unfortunately prove. 
And if people are not going to speak up or they're never found or they escape before this happens, then he's not going to be penalized for those things. That's the only thing I could think of. Because I was like 30 years, I read it, and then I read it again. I'm like, that's it? 30 years plus what? Like, I wonder, too, like how the trial was done. I mean, not that it should matter, but don't we hear, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like when there's witnesses or witnesses testify or you have multiple witnesses testifying, like sometimes the penalty is harsher. Like I really I wonder what his trial was like. Yeah, definitely. I was actually just kind of talking about this today at work. Like if you have witnesses and you have people that come forward that want to say what happened and, you know, there's it's not just kind of like them telling the story, but there's maybe some type of forensics or text messages or something that goes along with it you definitely probably could come down harder on the perpetrator whereas if the state or the government is just going after like the bare bones of the crimes like it's gonna be you're not gonna get as much time just because there's just less grounds basically the last question i have is how does this crime relate to the article that we actually discussed earlier in the episode about Crime and paranoia. I don't know if this particular crime necessarily relates to what we were talking about earlier. Um, I mean, I guess in some ways it does, right? Because so, for example, you might hear about like cases of sex trafficking and, and things like that in Alaska, right? But then we also have to kind of remember, and I don't want this to be taken the wrong way at all, Um but obviously these girls were at a more at risk environment for something like that to happen. Right. Obviously not their fault, but they were at, they had more of a risk. And I think one thing, and, and I, you know, we, I think me and Chris actually talked about this um, either today or yesterday or something when we were talking about that article before we recorded this episode. One thing that I always think is really interesting is when you're on Facebook, for example, and it seems like every single week there's somebody posting about, I was almost trafficked. I was almost this. I was almost, I was at Walmart and I was, and, and you stop and you have to think, were you really almost trafficked? Or is it just that you've seen this happens? You've seen so many posts around this topic that you feel like somebody looking at you in a weird way or somebody, you know, for out of just pure coincidence was following you for a while as you were leaving the store or something along those lines. Right. And I think that's kind of where, when we start talking about paranoia in true crime, I think that's kind of where it starts to bleed over um, where people think that these things are going to happen to them when realistically it probably wouldn't. Because again, when we're talking about something like human trafficking, human trafficking is a, is a huge, huge underground type of operation in most cases, right? And the people who would genuinely be trafficking somebody are going to do everything in their power so that you don't even realize what's going on. So I, you know, whenever I do see those posts about, you know, this guy followed me for, you know, two miles on my way home, maybe he just lives near you, you know, or maybe he's just a weirdo. I, I think people forget they're just weird people out there. Like the way that people interact and and, and look at you and stuff, they're just people that are weird. Um, so I don't know. I, I, I think there's at least that sort of connection where, you know, maybe somebody who would look at this case would now suddenly be more worried about potentially being trafficked when realistically the odds for them 
are personally pretty low, but, but yeah, interesting nonetheless. Well, I think too, it's funny that the article actually like made a statement that was saying, I don't know if it was about trafficking or about like people are also, I mean, and rightfully so like home invasions, like that's terrifying, but I don't know if it was that or human trafficking. You could read the article, but basically like someone who's about to like kidnap you and like sell you on the black market is not going to pull up to you and like daylight with their plates like plainly visible daylight at a walmart parking lot and follow you home down the main highway yeah no there's and it's like could it happen i mean of course anything absolutely but it's like i got i was like it was like a cheeky point that they made i was like not wrong (laughs) i do think like i don't know kind of what cameron was saying like that they were in a higher risk situation I don't know if this totally relates to the article we were talking about before because I feel like for those paranoia situations or like things like that, I feel like people are more likely to be paranoid if it's like, you know, we don't know why this happened. You know, it's unresolved or it's a mystery, you know, things that it's like, oh, this could very easily happen to me. Like, we don't know what happened. Like, if you see yourself in that situation then i feel like that's more when people tend to be paranoid so i don't know that's true i was also thinking of it in relation to the article in the sense that and this may be like kind of a run-on but like at face value this could this article could make someone paranoid about because if we're going with the paranoia trend Oh my God, if I go to Alaska, I'm going to be scooped up and I'm going to be trafficked. When now, in reality, thinking how we think and we're always talking about true crime, we come here every week, each of us has an article, we're like looking at it more in depth. We know that if we go to Anchorage, Alaska, the likelihood that we'll be safe is probably pretty good. Um, and unfortunately, what happened to these women is a result that they are part of like extremely vulnerable populations. Um, you know, one of them was native and sometimes native people in states like that live in extreme poverty and they were resorting to survival. That's probably how it happened. So it's like if you're looking at the paranoia thing, no, you're not going to get scooped up. If you go to Anchorage, Alaska, you really have to like look more in depth. And that might be something that people want to take away if they're going to become interested in true crime like don't just look at a headline for face value. Like, look at what's actually going on. You should do that with the news anyway. But especially with crime and we were talking about kind of a traumatizing effects and the paranoia that comes from it, I think that would be important. Also, it kind of, the article also brought up kind of like even just the fears of like gangs in places like Long Island. It's similar to the articles that Cameron sees on Facebook. We see in those areas like Facebook statuses that are, um, I pulled over and cause I had a flat tire or I pulled over to help someone. And then they think that they're going to somehow wind up in the middle of a gang initiation, which yeah. Okay. Anything can happen. It can happen. It happens. But the likelihood is like, is low that they're going to pick someone off the street, not from their community, not from their demographic, like unfortunately. So I don't know. The paranoia thing was really interesting. And I thought that But like what you're just saying about the gang initiation thing, like that's kind of what I was saying. Like that's a total in people's minds. 
That's a totally random thing. Could happen to anyone. Like if I went up to that stoplight right now, like that could happen to me. So I feel like that's more where the paranoia sits in. It's like, oh, like know. yeah, it like, feels it random. Could be me type of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, last time, like when we say these things, like, oh, like the Anchorage thing or the initiations, like any- anything can happen. I mean, you could walk out your door and then some bullets are flying in the, the safest of neighborhoods. Like, can it happen? Yeah, but mm-hmm. it's like the likelihood and. The article also portrays like this fascination of like crimes against women. Not to keep going on about the article, but it was just interesting and it just kind of t- again ties in well with trafficking. I feel like that's like a really new phenomenon that people are running with. Um, well, a lot of times, too. I mean, when it comes to crime, I don't know the exact statistics, but in a lot of different, um, in a lot of different situations, most people know who is committing whatever the crime is, whether it's an assault or a homicide or, you know, something along those lines. Very rarely, I believe, is it completely, you know, like 100% random. Not that it doesn't happen. It does. But in most cases, people know the other person and it's usually something personal, you know, with it as well. Yeah, it's just very it's interesting how a lot of the media sensation doesn't even match the statistics like the article also brought up how there's like a fascination and string of media about crimes against women which yes women there's like women can be targets just by walking out their door at a certain time of day just for wearing a certain thing which should should never be a thing but you know we again we're seeing it with the gabby petito case like young female uh turns up dead unfortunately and it's like this whole timeline trending every day we've been seeing it now for like close to three weeks whereas you know the homicide rate is actually higher for men but we always see these like these patterns of documentaries about what happened to women it was also interesting because it is like yeah it's true you're in danger sometimes just wearing what you're wearing but statistically on paper we're actually the world is safer than it's been since like the 90s, the 80s, and the, it's actually higher homicide rate for men. So surprised me. But anyway, that's all we have for this week. And we are on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook. And we would love for you to share our or your theories with us. Or what do you think about the article? Do you think that true crime is making us traumatized and paranoid? Or do you think it's raising awareness for and you know, getting justice for these victims. So thank you everyone for listening and for joining us today. And you can find all photos and sources for this case on our website, thrillgpodcast.com. We release new episodes every Monday and each week we post two clues leading up to our next episode. The first clue is we're going to the lake up north. Be sure to check out our Instagram for the second clue later this week. Thanks again for listening, and as always, you can keep up with all things Trilogy on social media at at Trilogy Pod and make story requests on TrilogyPodcast.com. Bye.